Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insure tech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Great stuff. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky to be joined by Jeff Keast uh, from Montu. Um, Jeff, uh, good morning. How are you? Good, thank you. Alex, how are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. Um, I love the rules of the podcast. We've been chatting for about 10 minutes before we start, but we, uh, <laughs> we have to Always. welcome everyone else in. Um, but look, thank you very much for joining me. Um, it's an absolute pleasure. Um, always like to start with the guest introducing um, their business. So perhaps you could introduce Montu and, and what it is you guys do. Sure. Uh, so Montu does a, uh, a couple of things. I guess, first of all, it's um, probably apt to point out that we are focused mainly in the life and health insurance uh, domains. That's a big, big focus of ours. Um, what we do is we're an actuarial automation and decision science platform. To put it relatively simply, um, actuaries and actuarial talent and actuarial teams are often performing very low value tasks with quite high value resources. I think you would know as a recruiter that actuaries are relatively expensive and one of the biggest uh, staffing costs that insurers have. There's lots of work that they're doing using old legacy tools or even Excel. Um, that's basically low value tasks that we're helping them to automate. Mm -hmm. The other one is that we're really focusing on is what we refer to as decision science, which is really the consolidation of you know, actuarial science, data science, and third-party data sources to help identify the best decisions that insurers can make and, um, and all the trade-offs that are associated with them and really put the science uh, into decision-making essentially by combining those things. So that's really yeah. the focus of ours. Um, as I mentioned, life and health insurance is the kind of key verticals that we're working on. Sure, sure. Thank you for that. Um, it's uh, it's uh, always good to get that intro out of the way because I, I, I definitely wouldn't have broken it down as succinctly. So um, thank sure. you for doing that for me. You have to do um, this quite a lot in my job, as you can imagine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I, I'd probably be pretty good at running down uh, what FinPro does, but uh, it's it's always it's always a bit of a challenge from the other side. So um, I'm always something I wanted to sort of ask and start on is that you know. Actuarial science is a very data and technically heavy environment. Um, and I suppose the one thing that surprised me is that for an actual, uh, for a sort of data and technical heavy environment, um, technology has still been quite slow to evolve um, in that sector. Um, and I wondered what your thoughts were on what drives that, because it seems at odds with the kind of the types of people that they have in the environment, the kind of the, the, the technical side of it. Um, so I wondered if you, what your thoughts were on what's driven that. Sure. So I'm happy in, in case there's uh, actuaries listening, I should qualify by saying I myself am not an actuary. So this is <laughs> I guess, my opinion of spending, you know, a few years and we employ, you know, actuaries and, and data science and other technical people. So, I mean, for me at a personal level, it still surprises me by the lack of technology adoption in life and health insurance and then specifically within the actuarial domain. Mm -hmm. Prior to Montu, I spent, um, you know, a lot of time at other financial services companies, mainly doing software for corporate and retail banking, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of the reasons why I really wanted to get involved in Montu. As for the reasons why, I, I, you know, based on the experience I've had, there's a few. Um, one is, is that actuaries want to be very comfortable with the tools that they're using because they're using those to make recommendations and predictions about the future. And so one of the things that's important for them is to have 
a high level of trust mm. in what they're doing. And the outcome of that is often homegrown. And so we're still seeing massive amounts of the use of Excel because someone can build a model themselves, reconcile and validate it, and then provide recommendations. And if they get asked, how did they come up with that? It's very easy for them to do so. But mm -hmm. what that means is, is that it's quite slow and you have a lot of bespoke models that actuaries are using that if someone else wanted to use it, it would probably be quite complex. Mm -hmm. on, the, on the, I guess at a more senior level as well, we're actually seeing this change a little bit, but there's a lot of uncertainty by executives, particularly those that aren't actuaries, to understand what actuaries actually do on a daily basis. They get the value of it. Yeah. But if you ask them to break down what are the, you know, the 5,000 actuaries or the 1,000 actuaries you have on staff doing, they would struggle to do so. Therefore, there's quite a um, heavy trust in actuaries choosing their own tools because mm. executives don't necessarily understand. And so we haven't seen a huge amount of, you know, actuarial transformation or modernization or, or automation from our perspective as what you've seen in other industries or other um, professions, really. Mm. I often refer to that as the sort of um, CFO or CTO uh, issue uh, for, for businesses in that, in that you, you tend to kind of go up via your vertical, your growth in a business is by that. And then, then you're put in this position of running a business and you've immediately got to hire a CFO or a CTO and you're not necessarily the person best placed to evaluate those skills, um, you know, um, and that's, and that's a challenge. So you know, it's completely understandable, but um it's almost the kind of ultimate problem with businesses, you know, you, particularly when you're kind of trying to understand all these different elements. So that does make sense. I wanted to kind of build on that as well, actually. Um, you know, you've internally got um, data science, data engineering people. You've got actuarial people in Montu. Um, <laughs> this is obviously me asking you to put your neck on the line a little bit here. So I appreciate this is difficult. But one of the things that's come up a lot when I've been in my recruitment role is where does data science sit within an insurance carrier um in my mind actuarial science is one view of of the data that comes into an insurance business so i theoretically think a sort of a, a sort of most senior data science person would oversee all elements of data that's my personal view um definitely not all carriers see it that way um and there seems to be a sort of a conflict so i suppose more without this is less asking you to kind of put your neck on the logo i think this is the right or wrong way but um where have you seen it work well um, as we've seen these emerging kind of data science, data engineering teams sit with actuarial, where have they kind of worked best, um, whether it's hierarchy or kind of just the way they collaborate? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a good and complicated question. So <laughs> I don't mind, I don't mind being maybe slightly provocative in my opinions. Honestly, so far, I haven't seen it work particularly well. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we're finding with working with customers and, you know, often it might be actuarial teams which are uh, tend to be product line focused yep. so for an example if we're working with a big carrier it might be that we work with their you know their savings teams which is or investment products which is you know universal life or whole life or we might be working with their protection business or we might be working with their annuities business mm. so you've often got actuaries that are quite product line specific but then what you have is um, what they're referring to not necessarily as data science teams but analytics teams or data teams um, that are sitting cross-functionally, I guess, to use the more corporate term. Mm. And so 
I like the idea of cross-functional personally because it means that you can understand a broad range of problems across the industry, but it creates quite a set of challenges because what you've got is like essentially a business partner that's an analytics team. And so if the protection business is one that's not necessarily focused on growth, but focused on retention and you've got the, you know, the, the savings or investment business that's focused on growth, the investment of that cross-functional resources is likely going to go to the more of the growth business. And so mm. what you end up getting is a, in my opinion, a disproportionate mix of the investment of those data science skills. And so one of the things that I, I would like to see, and this is where we refer to it as decision science is essentially teams of actuaries and data scientists or data analysts working together. We do mm -hmm. that at Mon2, but we're a technology business. So we have mm -hmm. a customer success team, that staff with both actuaries and data science and overseen by you know data science and, and actuarial leaders and then a, a leader above that i would like to see or i think would be better for the industry to be actuarial and data science teams actually working together in the same business unit mm -hmm. rather than having you know functional and siloed teams working together because in my opinion it's just not working you know we work with some customers who have got billions of dollars of assets under management because of the number of policies they've got and they've got one data scientist. It's like, I don't, yeah. like that yeah. makes no logical sense to me. We've even had customers ask us, oh, we, we're going to work with you now, but we also need to recruit a data scientist. And we think, you haven't got a data scientist in your team yet? I don't understand how that is. <laughs> I don't understand how that can exist in today's data heavy world. Mm. Mm. Like, that's probably a long answer and maybe not direct, but no, not at all. We, no. we haven't seen it so far, honestly, anyone get the model really right, in our opinion. Mm, no, I, no, I think it's, it's, it's a great answer. And, and I think that's echoes what I've seen. And um, um, <laughs> I probably shouldn't shout out to other recruiters on my podcast, but I, 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 I listen and watch a lot of content that comes from a guy called Carl Winterbottom who specializes in um, data uh, recruitment. And one of the things he's always talking to about data leaders is um, how you kind of have to start with effectively like the mission and the strategy and, and of of data within the business rather than going we've got loads of data let's try and derive some value it's almost like start with the value we're trying to derive and then like like work back from there and I, I think i think the problem that it highlights is that if we're hiring the wrong people to lead those teams you could have a you should have a team and i agree with you i think that's the right model is to have like everyone in a team together so you've got data uh, scientists engineers you're calling it decision science it all works together um but who leads that team? And the problem that I found is that I was recruiting for these new skill sets, data science and engineering, for example, plugging them into a team, but it was all reporting into a chief actuary. Um, and now there are many different chief actuaries who have different skill sets. But the problem is if they're approaching it just like, if they're essentially just running an actuarial division and they're just, you know, they're having some data scientists because they think they should, or they're hiring actuaries that have called themselves data scientists because they also think they should, then we're not getting the same objective. So it's it's more about, you know, setting the mission correct from top yeah. down. Um, but let's presume we, we, that... We, we yeah, framed it slightly but... differently, so that's okay. Sorry to interrupt, but, um, no, you know, we did, a, I think I wrote an article recently for, I think it's Forbes, and our viewers, especially in the decision science space, start with the problem first. Right. And, and that, that seems, I, I feel like I'm teaching, telling people to suck eggs a little bit here because mm. it seems blindingly obvious. Mm -hmm. But what's the problem you're trying to solve? What value does that have to the business? And then what skills and structure do you need to solve that? And that's the way that we think about decision science is start with the problem first. Yeah. And then you identify, you know, the people, the data sources, 
the outcomes, the trade-offs that you're looking for and you work from there. Whereas too often you see, we're gonna set up this team, here's a billion data points, go tell us something interesting. It's like, well, that's not really particularly helpful. You're gonna find some insights, sure, but you've got no mandate to act on those. All you've mm. got is, we spent a year investigating this data, here's what we can tell you. And then the executive or whoever the leader of that business goes, our priorities have changed, it's no longer interesting for us anymore or relevant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so problem first is a big thing for us. Yeah. Yeah. No. I, I, yeah. There's something that we saw echoed in, in, in things that I've certainly read and where I've seen it work well. Um, I've also, you know, I think it speaks a little bit to a conversation we were having off air um, uh, about where do we get skills from? And, and I think uh, insurance is definitely one of those sectors, which is very sort of keen on having bringing in people from within inside the industry um so even if you want someone that's kind of going to be your data leader you still want that person to come from the industry um and i don't see as many uh, we're seeing more of it particularly in the data field you are getting people come from kind of external in industries but they're also not being i wouldn't say particularly brave you know we're saying oh we're going to be brave and get someone from credit cards or uh, banking or kind of something that's got some sort of parallel which is still a step in the right direction but we're not seeing those kind of um, leaps of faith to say, right, why don't we get someone from, I don't know, a hotel chain or a massive hyper growth technical company that, that, that has lots of data, complex data, and has to kind of provide value. Um, and I think sometimes that's, that's a weakness of the industry. I, I mean, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, it was a few years ago, I was sitting in a room with, you know, maybe 11 or a dozen pretty senior executives in the life insurance industry where, where, you know, the agenda was about, you know, kind of innovation and change. And several of them said quite transparently, we're pretty happy with our 4% year on year growth. Like yeah. if, 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 if the disruption that we need to create isn't necessary, then why would we do it? And I found that quite kind of strange because I was like, in three years, you're going to be disrupted whether you like it or not. Like you can, put your head in the sand until three years down and then have to do something dramatic, mm. then, which is fine. And so that creates an environment where they don't feel they need to recruit from the outside because all they want is people that can drive incremental growth essentially. But where I, where I actually do see a difference, um, I like the work that a lot of the cloud providers are doing. I think mm. they're the ones that are bringing in maybe not necessarily hugely external, but often people with financial services skills. So people from credit cards or payments or retail mm -hmm. banking software. So, you know, Google Cloud, Azure, AWS. I think they're recruiting quite smart because they mm -hmm. understand that they're obviously very data heavy businesses. They're not just providing, you know, cloud storage. You're also providing, you know, services at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think they're looking at people that have dealt, especially like retail with massive data sets and going, these insurers are just sitting on a like an absolute um, plethora of data. We want to have people that can actually help them um, use it so hopefully that drives some change but i think mm. it'll be slow unfortunately mm. i suppose it's it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword in that as well isn't it because it's this firstly yeah something that's covered in podcast quite often is is particularly uh, the incumbent um uh, businesses, the incumbent carriers and brokers, etc. That yeah, you can be too successful to innovate, right? And, and there's the innovators' dilemma as we talk about incremental growth. Um, and secondly, that the the challenge of innovating within data when you've got so much data over such a long window of time is also so massive that it's it's um, prohibitive to actually do anything about it. 
because the cost is potentially, or maybe it's not even the cost, cost, but the scale of the challenge is terrifying. Um, so you can. It is, but it's not that. like. But I don't. I don't think they're sitting on more data than other industries have been able to mine and no. use. And and to go back to the you know the point that you know you made, and then I followed up with earlier around value and problem first. Like if they start with it, you know, some businesses that have got enforce blocks right so they're not selling any new business they're trying to you know reduce expenses and improve return on capital you've got some growth focused insurance businesses are like we just want to attract new customers we want to be able to cross sell so if you start with the problem first mm. you could find that you can narrow down the data and the problem itself to be you know very well defined and therefore not the hugely mammoth task that you perhaps see it to be if you're like we've got to mine all our data to find these insights Mm-hmm. yeah 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 i suppose looking at the problem holistically is, is completely unhelpful it's like breaking it down and yeah, yeah. um answered answered it uh beautifully um the um the thing i wanted to touch on quickly was just kind of from a, a monty's perspective and its genesis um why why specifically that area of the market there, there's obviously actuaries in in other fields um is it just the TAM of that market's larger from this perspective or, you know, <laughs> being crude about it or is it? Uh... <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, so Cam, sure. Um, the size of the market is absolutely interesting for us. So mm-hmm. um, we also, one of our founders, uh, Klaus, who's our chief product officer, he, he came from a life of, um, no pun intended, life insurance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just he, as an actuary himself, he was just, constantly frustrated with the lack of opportunity to create better decisions for the companies he worked for and he put that down culturally of course as we've kind of been discussing but also to the tools that he was using um, mm. and also one of the reasons we like it as well as that uh, and this is no disrespect you know to people that are um, you know doing innovation stuff and you know pnc or general insurance like life and health insurance is much more complex mm-hmm. so you know, for us, there's probably slightly less competition in trying to disrupt, you know, decision science and actuarial automation in life and health because it's so much harder. Like, you know, your policy duration is 10, 20, 30 years, whereas, you know, PNC and GI tends to be kind of yearly. So for mm-hmm. us, um, it's both a more complicated opportunity, but it also gives us an opportunity to create a bit of a moat because, mm-hmm. you know, we've spent several years now building a very complicated technical platform in a way that's user-friendly even with technology advancements it's going to be very hard in our opinion we maybe we're slightly um arrogant i don't know it's going to be very hard for people to replicate that quite honestly alex um yeah people can and they can maybe combine python and r and and excel and some other tools but that's not true software that's combining a whole bunch of things together to create a workflow of some kind that's often a workaround so Mm. our view is if we get this right and we feel like we're really close to getting it right is that we have a very defendable business yeah that's providing a lot of value of course yeah sure 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 um thank you for answering that was a slightly unfair question but you know (laughs) um the I mean, something that's actually come up before. I was talking about life and health software in in, in another podcast, and was particularly the time frames that your um, potential clients are, are t- talking about. You know, they're talking about will you be here in twenty five years time? Yeah, when we still need you, effectively, um, or potentially, you know, um, and that's the kind of like time frame that people look at with their software. Is is that something that you 
you share those sentiments and I kind of wanted to understand like what has been your biggest kind of prohibitor no, actually less to growth I put growth growth down but more to kind of how do you penetrate a market that thinks in those terms and um, yeah how do you get that foothold it is a, yeah uh, I still don't think we've got it exactly right and we've made loads of mistakes um, along the way and, and these 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 companies certainly do think in long time horizons but then the people within the companies don't necessarily think in terms of those time horizons as well, right? So you've, sure. you, although the companies do, you've also got to remember that you're dealing with um, with individuals. I mean, some of our biggest inhibitors, we our initial value proposition when we came to market was focused on pricing optimization, which is still mm -hmm. a core capability for us. Mm -hmm. But that was very hinged on companies taking a growth focused view of the world. Now, as I said earlier, a lot of the executives I've met are comfortable with lower growth rates and return on capital because it's consistent and stable and it's what their shareholders return, expect, right? After taking a very growth-focused view of the world, one us in business, but mainly for those that thought the same way, which is actually a smaller portion of the market. Mm. So one of the things we've had to change, which is good for us because it's a core capability, is how do we improve um, expense management and return on capital, right? Which much better aligns to what expense what executives in the life insurance domain and especially health insurance are really wanting to see. And so that was a bit of an error we made when we considered our own value proposition. And that's predicated on the fact that these carriers are pretty comfortable with slow growth. Mm -hmm. Other challenges that we faced really are what you expect in any large company, but you know, with all due respect to our wonderful set of clients is the inertia around decision-making. Yeah. Like it's I've worked in, you know, financial services all my life, big, doing deals with big banks around the world. And I thought they were slow to make decisions. Life insurers and health insurers have been especially slow. And I think that relates to the long time horizon. Mm. So it's not uncommon for us to be speaking to a new customer for 12 to 18 months. And then once they say yes, another six to 12 months to actually go through procurement. Now, yeah. We're doing everything we can obviously to reduce that. And for us, once we have a relationship with a customer, it's really important that we grow that relationship because we know that time to acquire is really high. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this is all down to the fact that they know their business has been around for a long time. It's going to be around for a long time in the future. They've got long duration policyholders, and so they're not quick to make decisions. Now, I wish I had the you know whether silver bill or magic bill or whatever it's called to speed it up. Um, we don't. But what we have found is changing our um, I guess messaging to be much more aligned with we can help you save money this year mm -hmm. has driven a much quicker speed of which we can actually get clients to onboard versus we can help you grow, which they see as a much longer term strategy. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Safe versus grow. I thought that, you know, it's um I think I always think about that because I started in claims actually. My first my first job in 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 out of out of college was in claims. And uh I was talking to someone about a, a claims technology business the other day, and I'm, I'm surprised how little it's, it's happening now, but it, it sort of surprised me how long it had taken to focus on claims, for example, because something is instantly hitting the bottom line. You know, it's like I can, if you make that more efficient, you save money, you make money. It's like it's, 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 it's alpha cash. And, um, and, and, but people are focused much more on growth and distribution, and these are all great things, and, and they allow you to get into different markets, for example. But I'm always amazed how little focus there is on. You know, if you can save money, make efficiencies, you save money immediately. It's immediate benefit. So, yeah. Um, yeah but I also think that depends on the nature of the product, right? So, again, shorter duration products are probably going to have immediate, like car insurance as an example. Like if mm. you can reduce claims, that's going to have a yearly benefit to you. We're doing um, 
a lot more work now in long-term care insurance in the US, uh, mainly in the claim space, wellness management and claims management, like who's at risk, why are they at risk, what are they likely to claim for? I don't mm-hmm. know, you know, if you're aware or, or the listeners, you know, conservative estimates in the industry put liabilities over the next 20 to 30 years at 250 billion US dollars. More realistic, put it somewhere north of 500 billion, probably up to 700 billion dollars in claims that are going to have to be paid out. And so like, to, to your point, like we absolutely agree, like this is just a huge opportunity to do something that can really bend the cost curve. Like mm-hmm. you save 10% out of a market that's gonna spend $500 billion, like $50 billion to the bottom line across the top 20 carriers. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of expense management and return on capital that they're going to um, that they're going to see as well. So we, we think there's a, sorry to diverge, there's a huge opportunity in, in claims. It does have an immediate impact most mm-hmm. of the time. And it's interesting talking about that point. And you see those numbers, which are huge, truly, truly terrifying. It's it's, 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 yeah. And it sounds weird saying it. Like I yeah. rolled off the tongue because I've said it so many times, but it's yeah. true. I mean, that that's the sort of number that even Elon Musk might break into a sweat about. You know, it's a, it's a, it's and a. And inflation's a, only going up. Yeah. Um, you yeah. Know, and and uh, not many people are really selling long-term care insurance anymore because they know it's becoming more and more expensive to. Mm. To pay out so it's just a well we just see it as a as a huge challenge for the industry and then you know subsequently a big opportunity for companies like us it's a big opportunity around isn't it as well because i think it, as i as you were speaking i was thinking about the um the sort of growth of more proactive policies that we're seeing so it's like that kind of you know uh, we don't want to get people when they get to the emergency room we want to get them healthier and 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 and, and well along the way um and and i think that's been quite not i'm quite a cynic anyway but i think some of it's been sold quite cynically previously but i think now we're seeing some really brilliant businesses come in and go look we want people to be healthier and better and and we want to reward them for that because i think it's the difference that shifted for me I, i've actually just renewed my uh, health uh, health cutter and rather than it be punitive i.e if you don't work out <laughs> we charge you more money which everyone knows you know most people have got a gym membership they don't go to right so nobody cares about the money it's it's like oh if you do these they've gamified it so if you do these things they gave me you know it's uh, i'm a simple being they give me my prime <laughs> prime uh, prime membership for nothing if i work out a certain amount of time and you know it, we're just seeing a change in the way that we look at this industry now some of that's born out of necessity and the size of those numbers but i think um yeah, it's just that opportunity, that cultural shift as well, that what people are looking at that and saying, okay, what can we do before we have to pay out these huge yeah, yeah. claims? Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, I, one of the things, if you, if you allow me to digress and we can cut this out later. Of course. No, 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 not um, at all. I'm a fundamental believer that insurance should be a service. So one mm. of the things that I really like about retail banking especially is, I don't know what it's like now, but when I was, when I went first, went to college or university, like banks are there to try and sign up university um, students on tertiary packages, you know, free and you get a free backpack and you get, you know, free mm-hmm. current account and savings account or checking account or whatever it might be, right? The reason that they're doing that is they want to acquire you as a customer now because over time they realize that they're going to provide you more services. So eventually yep. you're going to get a job, you're going to have, you know, direct debits going in and out, you're going to buy a car, you're going to buy a house. You may start a family if you decide to. Um, and so they can see the long tail over time. Whereas to me, it's been always very strange that insurance companies, particularly in life and health insurance, haven't combined different products as a service together. Like I want to acquire a customer when they're young and I'm going to provide them 
basic protection insurance because in case something dies, I've got a hundred thousand pounds or a hundred thousand dollars worth of assets they need to protect. Mm-hmm. As they get older, they're going to have children. Maybe they want to set up tax advantage savings accounts. As they get older still, maybe they want to switch to more annuity type or pension products. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't seem to be the way. And there's a mm-hmm. and there is a there is a direct correlation between a life insurer and a health insurer doesn't want someone to get sick and die just like the individual. So providing a service and an incentive to someone as a customer over time seems, in my opinion, ridiculously aligned that Mm. until maybe organizations like Vitality and some others have come out, um, haven't really jumped on, in my opinion. And if these carriers are going to win the younger demographic, they're going to have to think about the way that they align their what they call products, but really as services to that demographic. And I don't think anyone's got it right. I just think it's a massive opportunity. Mm, I completely agree. Yeah, I completely agree. And, um, you know, uh, the, the lack of awareness, I mean, obviously I'm based in the UK and, and, and we're very fortunate to have, uh, you know, good public health, well, <laughs> at the moment. Um, and, and, you and free public health. Free public health. Yeah, it might be a different stretch, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My experience was good with the NHS, but that was a few years ago. Yeah, my experience has been amazing. As I always have, I, I, and I was, uh, I always laugh at this because I definitely got my money's worth. Um, epileptic. Uh, my sister's got Crohn's disease. I fractured my skull twice. I broke loads of bones. <laughs> so, and all of us have done on the NHS is great. But you know, as I've got older and, and and obviously moved into having my own health insurance, just 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 uh, to make myself more comfortable. Um, I'm fascinated by how much I didn't know. So I didn't know that it was really cheap to get additional covers. Um, and it, it, it's only now that they sort of feel like they're building it into my lifestyle. They're not, they're making it work for me rather than just trying to, that classic thing of insurance being sold, uh, you know, uh, r- r- rather than being built for me. Was, and, and they're just at the tipping point of it um, because so much of it was like, well, this is what it is. This is what you get for it. Whereas, you know, and Vitality is the one you mentioned. Vitality is actually, actually who I went with and they, and it felt more like it was built for my lifestyle. And I think that's, you know, um, we're just at the start. I think, I think we're starting to see a lot of um, insure techs, uh, you know, modern life insurers coming up. I was going to ask you actually, uh, uh, just to kind of um, actually move that back to, to your business about, about, the types of clients you're working with a lot of the kind of newer kind of life insurance plays that might be relevant to you um, a lot of it's built on oh we've got a, a, a sort of new tech stack we're looking at it in a different way um, does that prohibit them from working with you um, have you worked with some of the, some of the newer players is it easier for example so we have worked with some of the newer players uh, certainly when we first came to market in the US um, and this is public so I think it's okay to say hmm. it, we started working with Haven Life yeah. They really helped us um, because we spent most of our time in Asia Pacific before that, get our, our initial product that we that we came to the US with ready for market. And so they mm-hmm. were really useful as a collaboration partner. Um, certainly organizations like them and, you know, Fabric, Ladder and Ethos, they're building a lot of stuff themselves. Um, mm-hmm. How do I say this? Uh, they're also relatively new with probably smaller numbers of policyholders. So sure. for us, and this is kind of obvious from our website, we tend to work with much larger players, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not because we don't want to work with the new ones, because often philosophically, we're very aligned around what customers need and also um, what technology can actually do in terms of you know, workflow automation or making better decisions. But we find that um, we're able to work, uh, I guess, kind of more frequently with some of the larger life and health insurance companies, just because I've got 
legacy businesses established, lots of legacy technical debt, problems mm-hmm. that we know that we can fix. Whereas mm-hmm. um, some of the newer ones tend to want to they, they build stuff themselves and house it as their own IP. And we've, we've even seen Haven Life as an example. They're now a technology business, not just an insurer. They've got their own mm-hmm. technology that they're trying to sell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I love the sort of partnership space within InsureTech. So I'm always kind of intrigued about, you know, someone could rock up at your door going, we're going to start a life and, and health insurer. How do we do it from from an actuarial perspective? Where should we start? Um, um, but people sort of want to bring some of that stuff in-house and make it their USP. Um, so I, I, I was intrigued about how possible that was. Um, I think it is. I mean, interestingly, what one of the guys I know from a traditional insurance carrier has just gone to one of the newer kind of more direct distribution models you know i spoke with him the other day and he said we've kind of got the same actuarial problem so Mm. you know we'd quite like to talk to you about some of your stuff because we know that it's not easy to fix so in some areas they still are facing the same problems and other ways are able to able to overcome them i think in distribution especially they're able to overcome them yeah Um, which is why you saw you know like western and southern acquire fabric yes yeah the, the the distribution piece has been probably the most um attacked from a kind of a you know insure tech perspective certainly so there's been more investment in in, in, in distribution as well um yeah. I, I wanted to ask you about um regulation um obviously it's a sort of you know one of the big challenges um uh, what constraints has regulation put on kind of your ability to innovate um if at all um i often look at the sort of regulation as, as almost like the constraints are where the innovation happens um because you have to overcome some of these things but i just wondered if regulation had, had played a part and um prohibited at all or, or, or even given opportunity yeah so um for us directly no mm-hmm. um i mean we've had to do things like becoming HIPAA compliant because we're dealing with you know, medical data, um, yeah, sure. you know, and so things like that. Um, it's created a lot of opportunity for the existing platform. So when you think things like IFRS 17, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the new accounting standards, so that has created a lot of opportunity for people to, you know, kind of replatform or add on new modules or whatever it might be to deal with those standards. But for us, not really. Regulation hasn't played a big impact in our either our growth or opportunity. But for our customers, yes. And so. Going back to the long-term care example, um, you know, there is this regulatory concern that offering wellness programs to existing customers might be in some way slightly discriminatory. So Mm -hmm. if I offer it to this person because I know that they're at risk and if I don't offer it to this person because the data tells me they're not at risk, is that discriminatory? Now, the the claims working group is, is working through actually addressing some of that stuff. Um, so for us, it's meant that we've got, you know, some clients that take a more, um, I guess, innovative view of the world and like, this is actually good for policyholders. So I don't understand how it can possibly be discriminatory or, or, you know, bound by regulation. Whereas others are like, we want to kind of see until maybe other people do it or some new rules come out or take a state by state basis. So it does have an impact sometimes on adoption, um, but it doesn't have an impact on us building what we want to build because we know it'll serve the industry if it's now or if it's three or five years down the track. Sure, sure. Um, and so I suppose leading on from there and, and, and probably uh, it might be my last question, but I might ask you a <laughs> slightly controversial question that I've asked sure. a few people. Um, but but this one, I just like, how do you, 
how do you see that your business fits into kind of offering benefit to the end consumer, the, you know, the purchaser? Um, is it just a kind of potentially a reduction in price or, 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 or there are other implications? No, so I think, um, you know, it depends on what we're doing for our customers, sure. which are the life and health insurers. So sure. um, it could be better service. It could be we understand that you're at risk of um, early transfer to an aged care facility. So we're going to we can help them identify those types of customers and what interventions they can put in place so that's mm -hmm. better for the policyholder and obviously better for the insurer ideally a better price if we're doing pricing optimization work or if we're helping to automate large parts of the actuarial workflow that's going to drive down expenses and then really as you start to understand customer behavior a lot better um, I don't like to use this term because I obviously believe insurance should be a service but really a better product for the customer so how mm. do you actually serve them with something a lot better because you understand their behaviors a lot more and in my mind, ideally, that would go to some kind of product or offering that, you know, straddles life, health, savings, whatever it might be, right? So um, I think better price, of course, but really better service and, and better product, um, ultimately. Yeah, yeah. Because I think I, uh, price is obviously important, but um, we talk a lot about this sort of end consumer and and there's been various comments made on the podcast, whether, you know, insurance only is really only built for brokers and, and it's not really built with a consumer in mind. And I think most consumers, particularly if you give the wider context of what's happened in um, the evolution of all of our buying experiences and, and our service experiences, they've just got better, uh, generally speaking. Um, and our expectations are higher and insurance, the reason, the reason I'm so fascinated is, is it seems to sort of been lagging behind in in that, um, and 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 it goes a little bit to our kind of looking outside of your field. You know, I I, I, I overuse the Amazon example, but yeah, Amazon didn't invent delivery; um, they just did it really well. Um, and 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 so um, that's that's interesting. Uh, my slightly controversial question: I, I need to be fair because we've had people on that have talked about sort of actuarial technology before, um, and I've asked this question of every one of them. I think so. I, I don't think I can let you uh, let you off. With, without it but uh, um yeah. do you think uh technology will evolve to make uh, actuaries obsolete <laughs> no i don't but i think it will significantly change what they do sure uh, i mean I, I don't and i don't mean that as a cop-out answer so um one of the things that actuaries have is a very unique and specific knowledge on insights of how um you know an insurance business is almost run not to be too generic what I think is happening, and not to make this selfish about Montu, is you've got very smart, high-value resources doing low-value tasks. Yeah. Most actuaries, and not all, because you know we're talking about an industry that employs hundreds of thousands of people right across the world. Most actuaries would like to be spending more of their time providing insights and predictive decisions that can help make the business run better and improve customers' life, versus spending hours or days punching numbers into excel i'm not saying all of them are doing this obviously mm. so what i think we'll see is a change as technology improves and not just me montu but other actuarial you know technology platforms that are out there that, it, that the role of actuaries will change they'll become much more insights and decision driven versus a lot of them doing low value tasks sure sure and yeah. so now my opinion and, and, and i if I was in this industry or another else, no role is, is subject is is um, immune to automation. Yeah, right? and it's not you're trying to automate them out; it's that you're trying to make their job easier so they can perform higher value tasks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think when um, when I started kind of talk, looking at automation, I think I think that you always people jump to the 
Terminator 2 version of the future, you know, where it's like, right, you're obsolete. But whereas, yeah, what we're saying is just, and just like the value add for me is someone that works in the recruitment industry, people just don't want to do monotonous, boring tasks. Um, and we also know they're not particularly good and reliable at that because they get bored with the monotony. So, um, but particularly when you've got these highly skilled resources, um, I'm fascinated that we get them doing anything that's kind of like generically monotonous. Um, um, just as a slight follow up on that, it, it, you know, and this is only us spitballing our opinions but um yeah the modern actuary coming in today qualifying as we speak um what new skills do you think they should be potentially adding to their to their sort of portfolio yeah i mean so so a big one is decision making um mm. and that might not necessarily be a technical skill that they have to do with you know valuation and financial reporting but mm. certainly as, as i've said like we're pretty bold about the fact that actuaries are going to have to provide levels of insights and executives actually want to hear people's opinions on things generally rather than just data mm. i think one that's already happening is data visualization and so um you know often it's been here's a big model or here's a spreadsheet we've written it into some kind of actuarial memo you know for me i'm not a life insurance executive right but as you know someone that's running in a technology company i want to see visualizations in a story mm. so becoming a lot better at storytelling how does the data support that story and then, which is already happening, I think, across actuarial societies around the world, um, I think we're going to continue to see the, the confluence of data science and actuarial science. So I think, you know, understanding, you know, third-party data, understanding different data science techniques, how that relates to their job, how they can work with data scientists, I think will become really important as well. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, Jeff. Thank you so much for being a guest. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation and, and thank you for um, uh, being a good sport and answering some of those questions that were a little sure. bit more... I actually uh, didn't find them that provocative. Actually, no, so well... It's, it's funny, isn't it? We're a sensitive bunch in insurance, so it's that, that scene is the provocative end of the scale, I think, asking you whether you think actually should be obsolete or not. Sure. That's fine, <laughs> uh, that's good. Um, but no, thank you so much for being a guest. I've really enjoyed this one, and um, yeah, pleasure, pleasure having you on. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, uh, Alex. Thank you. As always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com, or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I've been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email, uh, alex at wearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.